0: Let freedom ring. Let freedom
1: ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers.
2: Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tommy Morello, as always, getting us started, singing a song of freedom. Tom consistently and generously chooses to stand on the freedom side, as most of you do, and he creates a steady drumbeat and a soundtrack toward freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Leem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We take inspiration from the freedom schools brought to life in Mississippi in 1964, but finding expressions in workplaces today, schools and community centers, amazingly in prisons and anywhere and any time, people come together to create an insurgent and beloved community and ask once more the fundamental questions. Where in the world are we and where are we in the world? What is to be done? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, and busy in projects of repair and revolution. One of our listeners wrote to ask that we offer a land acknowledgement, a powerful ritual and an important reminder of who and where we are in the world, and I'm happy to do so. Today, I'm talking to you from Chicago, a city whose name is derived from the Algonquin world, and the word means river whose shores are lined with wild onions. Multiple waterways converge here, and so Chicago is home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy, the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. Following the settler violence culminating in the Black Hawk War of 1832, and then the Treaty of Chicago in 1833, many indigenous people were forcibly removed from these territories or murdered. Over a century later, under a different set of U.S. government policies called the Indian Relocation Act, many indigenous nations found themselves once again coerced to move, but this time back to the urban centers where their ancestors had been dispossessed a century earlier. Today, Chicago has the third largest urban Native population in the United States, with more than 65,000 Native Americans in the greater metropolitan area. As part of an effort to understand this violent history, as teachers, freedom fighters, and activists, we strive to remember and to honor this history of the stolen land on which we reside.
1: We open each seminar with a poem. Today's poem is by Anthony Walton, and is called Gwendolyn Brooks. It was written in 2000, on the occasion of her transition into ancestry. Sometimes I see in my mind's eye a four or five year old boy, coatless and wandering a windblown and vacant lot or street in Chicago on the windblown south side. He disappears but stays with me, staring and pronouncing me guilty of an indifference more callous than neglect, condescension and self-pity then I see him again at 10 or 15 on the corner, say 47th and Martin Luther King. Or in a group of men surrounding a burning barrel off Lawndale, everything surrounding vacant or for sale. Sometimes I trace him on the train to Joliet or Menard, such towns quickly becoming native ground to these boys who seem to be nobody's sons. These boys who are so hard to love, so hard to see, except as case studies. Poverty, pain, shame. One and a half million dreams deemed fit only for the most internal of exiles. That four-year-old wandering the wind tunnels of Robert Taylor, of Cabrini Green, wind chill of an as-yet-unplumbed degree, a young boy she did not have to know to love. Gwendolyn Brooks by Anthony Walton The next feature of our seminar is a stream-of-consciousness free-write where we encourage you to create a short, authentic, spontaneous piece from nowhere. The nowhere of the underground, the nowhere of under the tree, and the nowhere of utopia. Here's the prompt. Spring is around the corner, and change is in the air. Think about the coming months, and write a short list of ways you plan to engage your community and build the movement for justice. How do you approach building your base? How do you approach acting collectively and in solidarity? How do you approach changing the narrative and reframing the debate? All right, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt. Or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast.
2: The schools we want, the schools we deserve. Education, as I keep saying, is a fundamental human right and a basic community responsibility. Every child, simply by being born, has the right to a free, accessible, high-quality public education. That means that a decent, generously staffed school facility must be in easy reach for every family. This is not at all difficult to envision what the most privileged parents have for their kids right now. Small class size, fully trained and well-compensated teachers, physics and chemistry labs, sports teams, physical education, athletic fields and gymnasiums, after school and summer programs, generous arts programs that include music, theater, and fine arts. That's the baseline for what we want for all children of our communities. Anything less than that weakens and then destroys democracy. The curriculum must be forward-looking recognizing the dignity of each person, and strengthening tolerance, understanding, peace and friendship among all people, and respect for fundamental freedoms and human rights. Schools must be geared toward the full development of the human mind and the human personality, and that includes encouraging intellectual freedom and the ongoing consideration of the fundamental questions we ask in this seminar. Who are we? Where do we come from? What does this time require of us? Where do we want to go? Given the harsh, unresolved history of white supremacy and the adaptable and slippery nature of racial capitalism, it's no surprise that the descendants of enslaved workers, African ancestored youth, the children of First Nations people, and the laboring classes and immigrants from formerly colonized nations too often experience schooling as oppressive and colonizing rather than liberating this must change. The public schools can and must become sites of resistance, vigorously combating institutional racism, racial discrimination, segregation, and every form of oppression. We need a new deal for public education, shaped from the grassroots. We need popular assemblies mobilized in every town and county, every city, every neighborhood and community, in order to build a bold, creative, and spirited mass movement a red-hot fire from below, with a vision that seeks out the schools we need and the schools we deserve. These assemblies should be realistic, and that means they should demand the impossible. Because with a focus on first questions, we in your dream of dreams, what should a good school look like in a free and democratic society? What do schools need to do in order to fulfill the needs of free people with minds of their own? What could schools be and what should they become as fundamental pillars of a free society? Dare the schools build a free social order? With questions like that, we should be able to come up with the most forward-looking, exciting, dynamic, and inspiring schools. So here are 10 tentative demands for discussion. One, since education is a basic human right and a fundamental freedom, it can't be reduced to a product to be sold at the marketplace. So we should seek and demand generous, full, and equitable funding for public schools and not another penny of public money used to advance the potent but deeply corrupt campaign to privatize public education. Two, education is freedom, and we should demand an end to racism and white supremacy in both policy and curriculum, the termination of zero-tolerance policies, and the police presence in our schools. And the elimination of the well documented school to prison pipeline. Three, education for free people stands firmly on two legs enlightenment and liberation. We seek curriculum and teaching that allows young people to imagine and construct the kind of economy and the kind of society that they can thrive in, and that foregrounds not obedience and conformity, but rather the arts of liberty. Respect for oneself and others, initiative and courage, imagination and curiosity, problem posing and problem solving, mutual aid and solidarity. These things are essential to a free people. 4. Education must allow each person to reach the fullest measure of their promise and their potential. In a strong democracy, the full development of each is the condition for the full development of all, and conversely, the full development of all is the condition for the fullest development of each. We demand an end to the massively expensive high-stakes standardized testing regime and its obsession with sorting winners from losers, and which only serves to exacerbate existing racial, social, and educational divisions and inequities. 5. Education, like life itself, like art, begins in wonder. Learning to construct and create, to question and to experiment, to imagine and interrogate, to wonder and to wander. This is the work of the arts, as well as the sturdiest foundation upon which to build an education of purpose. We demand a full arts program in every school. 6. Education is embedded in community, and schools belong to and must serve the real material and cultural needs and aspirations of those communities. We demand safe and secure high-quality public schools, community schools, and after-school programs for all children, universal child-centered early childhood programs, nurses and counselors on-site, and free universal school meals. Centers of community health and education embedded in safe communities without regard to wealth or location. Seven, education builds on relationships, and sustainable relationships are difficult to achieve in large, impersonal, factory type schools. We want smaller class size and we want smaller schools. Eight, education depends on thoughtful, caring people in every classroom, performing the essential, ethical, and intellectual work of teaching and good schools build on the collective wisdom of teachers and staff in conversation with one another. We demand a standard starting salary for teachers of no less than $80,000 annually and expanded collective bargaining rights. Number nine, education recognizes that each person is the one of one, sacred, unique, immeasurably valuable, and at the same time that we are each part of the whole human family. We demand a curriculum that affirms both our individuality and our collectivity, that acknowledges the ongoing human struggle to achieve equality and justice, and that ensures generous funding for special education and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Ten, education recognizes that everything that counts can't be counted, and that everything that's counted doesn't really count. We demand schools that recognize children and youth as three-dimensional beings and not a collection of deficits and defects, and that acknowledges explicitly and makes count the values of love, joy, justice, beauty, kindness, compassion, commitment, curiosity, peace, effort, interest, engagement, awareness, connectedness, happiness, sense of humor, relevance, honesty, self-confidence, and more. So we want schools that prepare free people to participate fully in a free society. We want schools that young people don't have to recover from. We want schools that act as the hopeful launchpads for the dreams of all of our young people. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, Academics, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to people who we hope will help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we inhabit, name this political moment, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations and ask both, what's going on, and then equally important, what is to be done? I'm so grateful to be joined today by Raynard Sanders, an old friend and comrade who's really the heart and soul of New Orleans school reform. It's so good to see you, Ray, and thanks for joining me.
0: Oh, thank you for inviting me. I've been waiting for this opportunity.
2: Well, I didn't, I didn't mention in the introduction that Ray has a radio show that I've been on several times called The New Orleans Imperative, and you've been doing that for how many years?
0: Oh, I started that program, Bill, in 2009, so right. I've been at it. Uh, you know, 12 years now.
2: 12 years on that. But before that, a long time. New Orleans educator, a teacher, a counselor, an advocate, an yes. activist, and a principal. And at one point, you took a little breather and went up to New York City and got your doctorate at Teachers College, Columbia University.
0: Yeah, we took a little break, you know. You took a little break. And then <laughs> and that's that.
2: So we can call you doctor. Uh, yeah. But it's so good to see you. And I, I want to begin in an odd place because... Uh, You know, you talk about schools all the time and you know more than anyone in New Orleans about the situation. But I'd like to start with a few years ago when Bernadine and I took our granddaughters on a civil rights tour and we went through Montgomery and Birmingham and all along. And we landed ultimately in New Orleans and you were gracious enough to take us around. You showed us the Ninth Ward. But my 10-year-old granddaughter was just very enamored of Ruby Bridges. She had to see the Ruby Bridges school where Ruby Bridges, courageous young girl, you know, integrated the New Orleans public schools. And you did take us there and you were very, very gracious about it. But then you told us a story about the downside of of that story. And it stuck in my mind. I think it stuck in her mind as well. Would you mind telling us that story?
0: Yeah, um, I think... In terms of integrating schools, uh, there are two scenes that is probably in the memory of people across the country. One is when the students integrated in 1957 in Little Rock, Arkansas, the high school. I think it was nine students that right. went in. And so that, that scene is kind of etched in people's stone and etched in people's minds. In, the, in New Orleans, um, the same thing happened three years later, but in kindergarten, I mean, in first grade, I'm sorry. Right. And this was in 1960. Right. And prior to that, um, just like other parts of the country, um, the uh, African-American communities were pushing to enforce Brown. As we all know, Brown was with all deliberate speed and the communities was fighting it. And there was a big fight in Louisiana. And um, the... State of Louisiana tried to take over the local board. They didn't want to give them funds if they integrated, and there was a big fight between a federal judge, Skelly Wright, and also the governor at that time. But um what happened was um they decided to go ahead and relent and integrate. And they said that they would they would take them at the take kids at the full at the first grade. But they wouldn't take any boys. Now, why is that? <laughs> why is that? That's a good, uh, I can, you can use your own imagination, whatever myths you have about that. But they didn't want any boys. They wanted them at the first grade. And, you know, ironically, you know, the, you know, a lot of, you know, the racism was just like brewing real bad. But the other thing was, was that, you know, could these kids keep up with these white first graders? Mm. So what they did was they, t- they put an all call out and tested first graders across the city and had 800 parents that they interviewed and looked through their applications to take four girls. Ruby Bridges was one of them. Mm-hmm. And Ruby Bridges gets a lot of attention because... Her, a depiction of her walking to that building was uh, drawn by Norman Rockwell.
2: Right. I remember that. Really?
0: And, but you had the same thing you had in Little Rock with the spitting, you know, the, 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 I mean, there were uh, white groups out there cursing, throwing stuff. You know, the kids had to be escorted into school by federal marshals. So, Ruby Bridges went in, and it was November 14th, 1960, mm. when Ruby Bridges went into France Elementary School, and Leona Tate, um, Gil Saint-Étienne, and Tessie Prevos went into McDonough 19, which both of these schools are in the Ninth War.
2: And you showed us both of them. You took us to both schools. Yeah,
0: yeah. And... Um, you know, it was quite a scene. You know, I remember watching it on TV every evening, and there were hundreds of white parents and and uh demonstrators out there with all kinds of signs and all oh, and we also had a a neighbor president. Well, we had parishes here in New Orleans. We had a neighboring parish, you know, uh going on national TV. Telling the good white people in New Orleans, if they're going to integrate in New Orleans, y'all don't have to go to school on there. Come on to Plaquemines Parish and the Saint Bernard Parish. Um, so it would hit the national news. Yes, know? I remember. Uh, and that depiction of Ruby Bridges quite naturally went viral, right? Um, and you know, for those people that are interested, you know, all of that is documented now on YouTube,
2: right? But what was interesting to me was that. Uh, my granddaughter so much wanted to see that school. And you showed us the school. You then told us the story about the other three girls. But it, what stuck in my mind was the 800 families. And uh-huh. once again, it's that old story where justice would say, you don't have to be six years old. You don't have to be a girl. You don't have to be good looking or thin or anything. You, just, you Justice says yeah, yeah, you have a right, yeah. right? And yeah, that's what you yeah. said. That's what you said to my granddaughter, and that stuck in her mind that that idea that you have to be a perfect kid to integrate. Yeah,
0: yeah. And 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 whenever um, we test, Bill, as you, you know, you you know much better than me. Um, you know, uh, limits of the the the, the, the limits and uh, restrictions of segregation. They question the intelligence. And exactly. This, that, and other stuff that really does not matter. Exactly. Now I do need to say it, both of those schools now, um, you know, all the white parents took their kids out of those schools. Right. right. And those, those four, those three little girls were the only one I make 19. And um, Ruby was the only one at France school.
2: Now tell the story about that other school, that second school, because the, one of the little girls yeah. is now a, a, an elder and she's, she's working in that yeah. school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She, um, <coughs> well, you know, after Katrina, uh right before Katrina, that school, uh the neighborhood didn't have the kids, so the school had um closed and it was just an empty building. Um it was, you know, the school district maintained ownership afterward. But one of the three little girls, Leona Tate, uh former non-for-profit, took ownership of the building. Mm. Um and is putting a museum there and wow. and about what happened and desegregation mm. and those things. Um and she's going to have uh, uh, elderly living on the mm. second and third floor. Wow. And the first floor will be dedicated to uh, equity and justice and nice. uh, you know to get rid of racism in this country. Okay. Yeah. A very very good. Her name is Leona Tate. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's doing it, she's leading it, but she's doing it in conjunction with the other two girls.
2: Oh, that's awesome.
0: That's very great. And I think the name is, uh, their last names, WTP or PTW, something Mm -hmm. like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Equity Center.
2: But it's good. It's good. We need that kind of historical memory. And as you have pointed out, in many occasions, the U.S. has never really met the challenge of Brown, and they've run away from Brown at every opportunity. And this story that you're telling here is just one example.
0: Yeah, well, that, yeah. That, well, uh, you know, that's America's, you know, as, as one um, author put it, America's original sin, you know. Right. And, it's, you know, it's, it's a hypocrisy that we can't get over. That's right. We can't get over it in this country, and it flows out into education, jobs, housing, police brutality, criminal justice. But we we can't be honest about it. We don't want to face it. And so
2: why? what keeps you going? Why do you keep beating your fists against that wall, as I do? Why do
0: we do it? Well, we, first off, we do it because it's morally right. Mm. Uh, we do it because everybody needs a fair chance Mm -hmm. and we do it because um we just have this inner drive to fight knowing that we're going to pass this fight on to the next generation there you are you know so you know even the slaves that jumped off the, the ships you know uh, in the middle passage, you know, even you know our ancestors, you know, mm-hmm. um, and ancestors and other ethnic groups, you know, mm-hmm. they fought against oppression, mm-hmm. you know, and they resisted, and and I think it's it's in your it's in our DNA, so to speak. To Certainly,
2: Hi, and I also think you know, I, I as you say that I'm thinking, you know, who do you want to be as a human being? I mean, do you want to be somebody who goes along with the worst aspects? of our history. Would you like to plant your flag and do your best? Yeah. I mean, but you you have been a lifelong fighter in New Orleans. And, and I want to get to uh one other thing about our trip to New Orleans, which is you took us out to breakfast one morning, and uh it was at the site of where Plessy was arrested, leading to the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. Yeah,
0: yeah. homo Plessy. Tell us that story a little bit, because well, you're,
2: you're on the board of uh, Plessy-Ferguson. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, let's start off with Homer, because it's quite an interesting story. Um, and most of us know Plessy versus Ferguson. And the actual event is when Homer Plessy challenged the Separate Streetcar Act in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And even though um, nationwide, the federal law, stated that you could have Blacks and whites in the same car. In certain states, the railroad had to switch the cars around. and So um, a group of citizens here formed something called a Citizens Committee, a diverse group of citizens, um, free people of color, former enslaved people, um, uh, uh, people from Mexican descent. And they organized around attacking uh um you know racial restrictions in the, in in New orleans and one of the things they did was they decided to attack the Louisiana street car separate car act so in eight in eighteen ninety two um they planned it for two years they raised twenty six hundred dollars Wow, they hired an attorney uh from Ohio by the way, and they had everything set up. And what people don't know is, is that the railroad didn't like the s- Separate Streetcar Act. Number one, they had to spend more money because mm. they had to get these other streetcars. Mm. So um, the minute that um, you know Homer Plessy, who was an uh, African-American from New Orleans, light-skinned, um, and could even pass for white, he was a little white lighter than you, Bill. <laughs> 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 so he went. And um, he sat on a streetcar right down the corner where, you know, we went to breakfast at. And the conductor asked him for a ticket and told him they had to move. He refused to move and he had him arrested. As mm-hmm. Soon as they brought him into the jailhouse, the citizen committee went right behind him and bailed him out. Because if he would have stayed in jail, he wouldn't have lived till in the morning. And that's Mm -hmm. another story, you know. Mm -hmm. They would just take you out and lynch you. Uh, That particular that happened in 1892. Uh, Of course, in Louisiana, they all supported the act. It went to the to the U.S. Supreme Court, and um, the Supreme Court supported the Separate Car Act and created the Separate but Equal policy. There you are with that case that basically set the agenda. For everything post uh, reconstruction there you are, you know, uh, in terms of separating the races, whether it's schools, public accommodations, and everything right yes, but that but that Homer Plesser case, not in the Dred Scott case, those are the most foremost civil rights cases that challenge the racism and mm-hmm. the racist laws in America. Um, and they
2: they went the wrong direction and uh yeah. in Plessy versus Ferguson, they undid the 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 Fourteenth Amendment, basically. They they yeah. gutted the Fourteenth yeah. Amendment. And here we are on the verge of really gutting the Voting Rights Act. When, you know. Yeah,
0: and matter of fact, um, you know, I you know, I didn't know this, you know, um until in the last ten years or so. In the, in the United States Supreme Court, that was the first time the 14th Amendment was used to support being, a, you know, that that was illegal based on the right. Constitution. Right. And quite naturally, the, the judges back then, you know, they all fell in line and supported it. But, um, you know, it is a very, it's a historic case. And, um, you know, it's part of this, this long civil rights history in New Orleans. And it's a yes. very important part.
2: It is an important part. And you, you took me out to dinner one night, another time when I was in New Orleans visiting with you. We went to the Ninth Ward and you took me out to dinner with uh, a descendant of, uh, of Ferguson.
0: Yeah. yeah. And well, that's the other part of this story. Okay, you know, we tell me. So, um, in 1996. Um, so, in around uh, after post Katrina, around 2008. Um, An author had recently wrote a book called We as Free Men that really described in detail the Homer Plessy case and brought Mm. a lot of stuff to light that we didn't know. A guy by the name of Keith Weldon Medley. Great book to read, Mm. We as Free Men. And he knew Keith Plessy, who was a descendant of Homer Plessy, and Phoebe Ferguson, who was a descendant of Judge Ferguson. And he introduced the two of them together. Okay, Now, the interesting thing, they both were born the same year. And they both did not know what their ancestors had done, right? Right. And in many cases, uh, you know, with Keith Plessy, he heard about it in school, and he remember elementary school teacher telling him, I bet you to Tahoma Plessy, in his neighborhood elementary school, and in the case with Phoebe, they didn't talk about it, because they were embarrassed about it for years right. and years. Right. And, they, and um... And in 2009, they put a historic marker at which was right there where we had breakfast. Mm-hmm. And they formed a foundation. And instead of being home of Plessy versus Ferguson, it's not Plessy and Ferguson. I see. And we do civil rights markers across the city Excellent. and also do some work in schools. And it's all about this whole issue of equity and the horrors of racism and how we need to conquer it here in this country.
2: Right, and 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 so let's fast forward then to um, uh, to Katrina, because you've written a, a monumental book, the Coup d'Etat of the New Orleans Public Schools, and before that, you and our our comrade Dave Stovall worked on a book, Twenty First Century Jim Crow Schools, but that tells the story of New Orleans as a place that has never done justice by black kids ever. Uh, but but Katrina introduced a new element. And what we remember in Chicago most clearly is Arnie Duncan with his infamous statement uh, when Katrina wiped out New Orleans and killed so many African-Americans and depopulated the city. And Arnie Duncan says, well, it's it's a he said something like. It's a it's a blank slate. Now we can start over and really build a great school system.
0: Something like, like that. His, his actual words was Hurricane Katrina was the best thing happened to New world. That's what it that's is. His yeah, that's he reminded and, me. and that's his legacy too. Right? That's his legacy. Right? So Wherever he goes, he's going to carry that with him. It's like it's tattoo, so to speak. Yeah. So um, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've had these issues of segregation. in the Deep South. Um, and uh, we've been fighting this for, you know, years and years, really, since we got here and landed here in 1718. But But um, after Katrina, um, the national forces, um, in conjunction with state officials and then local officials, joined in to change the dynamics of where the public education was going to be delivered. And essentially um, it became an opportunity because there's a couple of things that happened uh, during Katrina, which people need to understand. Um, We're the first city in America in modern times to depopulate. Mm. Lost our tax base in less than three hours. Wow. And the first city to have a mandatory evacuation. Okay. Um, And that happened on August of 29th, which we all witnessed on Every television, you know, Katrina hit. Well, Katrina actually hit about sixty-five miles east of New Orleans, mm. and the flooding was a failure of the levees in New Orleans. Right, Katrina. The eye of Katrina did not actually hit here in New Orleans, but the flooding flooded eighty percent of the city on August 20 29th. And on there's several things that happened. Uh, Right quickly. Within eight days after Katrina hit, the Heritage Foundation hosted a meeting mm-hmm. uh with all of those great folks like Edward Meese and all of those great former attorney, nice conservative attorney general.
2: Yeah, I hear I in your voice. Go ahead. When you say great
0: people. Yeah, great people, right? And um they set the agenda on how to rebuild the Gulf Coast and rebuild New Orleans after Katrina. Now, this is when the city was flooded, bodies were still here. And one of the things that they said was uh, first off, economically, uh, to waive the Clean Air Act in terms of rebuilding, uh, postpone various taxes, but to offer different educational options. Mm. Right away, options are religious schools and those kinds of things, right? So President Bush at that time took that the 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 agenda, and Congress basically implemented that agenda for the rebuilding of New Orleans. Mm. So very early on, unbeknownst to us, when we were all scattered all across the country in forty nine states, by the way, Mm. um, the agenda was was a change to change the delivery model of public education in New Orleans and to turn it into charter schools and to begin this great experiment and to have the one urban city that we could do this in. I see. That became the dreams of Milton Freeman, another right. Chicago guy. And that's right. That's yeah, you know, that wrote about how, how it would be great to have these private schools and mm-hmm. that all came into fruition. So the um, state, along with the federal government and the Heritage Foundation and other folks and the typical uh, proponents, the Waltons, the Broad Foundation, they all begin pumping money in the city and eventually turn this city into an all-charter school district. Right. But in that delivery model, right? A couple of things that happened. They fired all the teachers, every employee.
2: How many people lost their jobs?
0: 7,500 people. Wow. Can. How
2: many were those who were teachers?
0: Uh, about about 5,500 and about 70% of them are African-American. Wow. It's the black community. Now, as you well know, um, you know, we're both educators, you know, have worked in higher ed. We've had a lot of state takeovers, but there's no state takeover where all the teachers were fired. Mm. Everybody was fired.
2: Mm. Right.
0: And they were fired and didn't know they were fired. Wow. But um and um so when we say when that agenda was to get rid of them, filing in the Milton Freeman playbook, so to speak, the other thing was to eliminate the public participation in the process. Okay. So in addition to doing that, um the state superintendent of education. Um, wrote the federal government, Margaret Spelling, who was the Secretary of Education at that time, and asked for $2 billion to help all of the families that were displaced, not just from Hurricane Katrina, but Hurricane Rita, which hit Louisiana about three weeks later and hit the, the western coast of Louisiana, the western side of the state. And in this request that he sent to Margaret Spelling, He referred to a situation in Florida in the 90s where some counties was hit by a hurricane. And um, he was concerned about keeping the teachers on the payroll and keeping their health insurance. And would would Margaret Spelling give him enough money? to do the same thing that the education, secondary education did back in Florida, mm-hmm. was to keep the teachers on the payroll and maintain their health benefits. And he cited this in his memo and told them that, um, you know, those teachers helped with the recovery, work with FEMA, and then the school districts were able to open up and we'd be able to maintain our teaching force. Mm-hmm. So he didn't get the $2 billion, but he got $756 million. Um, And while other parishes affected by Katrina, he gave them money to maintain their teachers. He didn't give anything to New Orleans. Why is that, do you think? Because they had a different plan for New Orleans. Mm. They wanted to make it an all charter school district, and they wanted to get rid of those teachers.
2: So the motive was very ideological. They wanted a model of their ideologically driven
0: Yes, yes. To create what they wanted to say, this is the 21st century urban city. Right. And this so, is the way you turn a school district around.
2: Right. So it was the perfect uh, kind of experimental station, right?
0: Yes. Perfect. It was like the perfect stall. Mm-hmm. Right. So to speak, it set up the right condition to come in and do that. OK. Um, about three weeks after that, the we already had a charter school law and it was a process by which uh, schools could become charters. And there also was a process by which schools would be taken over. Well, on October the 7th, the governor at that time signed an executive order waiving all the rules for establishing a charter in Louisiana, mm-hmm. making it much easier. But most importantly, if anything, Bill, in this new executive order, it eliminated the parents' voice the faculty and staff voice, and the community voice. So basically anybody could come in and start a charter school.
2: And they did. Oh, did they come.
0: (laughs) It came from everywhere.
2: I remember when I was there and I saw some of the gatherings on Friday evenings in some of the bars where all these Teach
0: for America kids would gather.
2: And they were undoubtedly well-intentioned, but they they didn't have a clue. They didn't
0: have a clue, and they were lied to some of them. Um, but before I go any further, I want to talk a little bit about that $756 million. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because that $756 million, the state superintendent, um, first off, he said he wasn't opening schools in New Orleans and he wasn't giving any money to open schools. Meanwhile, he was giving monies to open schools in surrounding parishes that had more damage than New Orleans. Mm. Okay. So, what he did, he gave them money, and they were able to maintain their teachers and maintain their um, hospitalization for 10 months up until April. And then they had to make a decision whether or not they were going to come back or not. He never gave that money to New Orleans, but he did take that money and started a national teacher campaign. So, in addition to signing a contract with Teach for America, he gave bonuses traveling if you would come uh bonuses and money to travel and also housing money for housing if you could commit to come to new orleans Mm. and he advertised that and brought in tons which was a big scandal because he took all the money brought in tons of white kids that took advantage of that along with the teach for america to replace those teachers
2: those veteran black teachers well, what's interesting about that is there's a theory behind what he's doing. And the theory is that to the extent that New Orleans is a struggling school system, the problem isn't resources. The problem isn't commitment. The real problem in that theory is a bunch of terrible teachers. And what we'll br- do is bring in a bunch of kids from Princeton and from Michigan and whatnot, and they'll be better. And And, and the it just strikes me that the The corruption, I mean, the moral, ethical, intellectual corruption of that position is just stark. Because if you're a kid coming from Princeton and saying, I want to help, I'm coming to New Orleans. But in order to do that, implicitly, you have to shoulder your way through a bunch of experienced people who know much more than you do. But you're not going to learn because you've been told that you're the savior.
0: Well, you're the savior and you've been told that those teachers didn't want to come back. That's right right yeah. now, meanwhile that ruined careers you know we take for instance you know i had a friend of mine and this is a this, you know this is a, you know um they were getting ready to retire um and um you know they had to retire early
2: mm.
0: right we had a, the other thing that happened was they lost their health insurance right unbelievable so new orleans was self-insured Okay, so you had retirees. Another another guy he was I meaning was principals together. Him and his wife had spent thirty five years in the school district, and um, they were paying four hundred and fifty dollars a month for health insurance for the both of them. In December of two thousand and five, in January that bill went up to nineteen hundred dollars. Wow, a month. Wow, he was not sixty five to take to get to Medicare. He, so he said, he said, "Ray, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't buy health insurance. If they wanted another 19, if I went outside, they would, you know. And back then, we talked about pre-Obamacare. So there was the pre-existing conditions. You know, they didn't, yeah. they, they didn't have to. You know, they just charged them They didn't take it. Right. So him and his wife, for two years, he saved his money and prayed that he wouldn't get sick till they got to Medicaid."
2: Yeah, that's the healthcare system we have. Save your money and pray. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, pretty thin, pretty pathetic.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you you had a lot of stuff going on, but the the other thing, and and I think it's a, a you know, in, in addition to the firing of the teachers and taking the money and bringing in the Teach For America kids, they changed the rules in November 29th of two thousand and five to take over the schools. So the rules had been set that you had to be below a a certain school rating for four consecutive years, not show any improvement. Then, based on that, the state could take you over. So they passed a law on November 29th, 2005, called Act 35. And what they did, Act 35 was written specifically for New Orleans. And what they did was they basically changed those whole rules for takeover. So the rule for takeover in terms of being below a score of 60 was now 87.3, you know, 87.4. Mm. Also, the rules for takeover now just for New Orleans was that you didn't have to be in improvement for four years. We could take you over right away. So we had schools, public schools, that finished the two thousand four two thousand five school year. When they got their ratings, they were given awards because they met the annual progress. Mm-hmm. They were saying they were doing a great job in June mm-hmm. of two thousand five, and in November they were told they were they were failing schools. Mm-hmm. So they changed the takeover rules, and with that, they took over hundred and seven properties, wow. buildings. Wow. schools mm. from the auspices of the locally elected board and moved it to the state. Now, the reason why I'm selling you 107 properties because they took over buildings that were already empty, that mm. were, had closed, mm. right? They took over land that was not, be, had not been developed that had been donated to the school. Now the reason why that was important because when FEMA came in, and take, for instance, McDonough 19, which was closed, where the three girls, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take, for instance, FEMA assess the damage for that at like $13 million. And I'm just using, let's say, $10 million, mm-hmm. right? When they took over, they took control of that FEMA money. I see. That went with that building. I see. And they didn't reopen those schools. Mm-hmm. And then they took all of that money and began to putting it into communities that they wanted to put it in mm. and gave some schools more money than other
2: schools. Of course. So so the net result, now we're 15 years later, 16 years later, the net result, where are the schools at today in New Orleans?
0: Well, we had 100 percent charter um, and they are chronic failures. I understand. Uh, they have the lowest ACT scores in the state of Louisiana. They have the lowest NAEP scores. The 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 state schools they have manipulated the <laughs> the rubric for saying what's passing and failing, and um, you know giving people false hope. Um, the school ratings are political, so you know if you're politically connected and there's the bill as charter school. And your school fails, we won't close you. I see. But if you're the Renard Sanders school, we don't like.
2: You. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's called, the, it's called the Air Sanders School. It's one school, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're operational and fiscal nightmares. Um, you know, schools open and close, you know, they don't follow best practices, they run by a lot of inexperience. They are given to uh, people who have no experience in running schools. So any used car salesman can come down here. Got it. Get a school. Um, they ignore student welfare. Just, this, uh, this, just uh, you know, school student welfare, and the schools have become profit centers. So we have you know dozens of administrators mm. um, that are making in excess of 150 grand. Right. You know, um, and, and, and terrible. are the are the any of the
2: kids who went down there with idealism in their hearts, are they disillusioned? Do they. Oh, has yeah. there been any kind of a pushback against this nonsense? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Many of them quit. Um, many of them have written articles about it. Many of them have, you know, kind of outed what was going on. Really good. What really disillusioned. Okay, so our good friend Kristen Burris,
2: I love her. Yeah, uh,
0: has written several books on New Orleans, also, and me and her have been collaborating for years. She has an upcoming. Uh, she has an article out now where she looked at one particular charter network and the way they treated the kids differently. So, one of the schools in this charter network is basically kids that they creamed. You know, all the smart kids mm-hmm. and, you know, very, you know, um, academically endowed, so to speak. Then in the, so the other school, they treat them like a no excuse school, walk right. on yellow lines and this, right. that, and the other. Right. And she has done about six years of research and talking with former students and parents and the things that they have done to those kids, uh, because this whole system is, you know, they're unaccountable, you know, they There's nobody that monitors them. Um, It's horrific. uh, The stories that you hear about um, the way they put courses on their transcript, uh, you know, the way they sent kids home, um, the way they they did home visits. For instance, if your child applied to the school, Mm -hmm. they would knock on your door and say, well, look, we want to visit your home. And so the lady said, elderly lady, you know, she opened the door and he said, okay, they introduced herself and one of them just walked in and started walking around the lady's house Mm. and she said, where are you going? And they gave her something to read and then they told her that we'll we'll let you know if your child can come in or not. Wow. You know, it's just a total disrespect for the community. Yeah, and I also need to say how corrupt this is and I've talked about the operation. So you know, in, in in New Orleans, you can be a charter school and you can cream all the best kids and have academic admission tests. And most charter schools, according to federal law, you can't do that. But in New Orleans, you can get to do that. Right? So we have a lot of schools like that. We have also schools, since they're doing the selection process, and they have these self-appointed local school boards where the minority enrollment has decreased from 40% to less than 15 and 20% in some of these schools, right? So you really can circumvent Brown and do those kinds of things, you know? Um, It is not a great place. And the other thing, Bill, if you get a contract from Louisiana to open up a charter school for the first two years, you're not held to any academic accountability standards. So if the school rating is 60, and you take it. You take it over at sixty, and you come in and you score thirty. They'll let you stay open. Mm. So there's no, there's no standards. It's it's free government money.
2: Yes, yeah, corruption in 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 extreme. But you know, one of the things I hear you saying today, and I've heard you say this for a long time, it's it it's in all of your writing and all of your advocacy is that what you really need to have a public school system is you need the public involved. You need the parents, you need the community, you need the teachers. And in many ways, New Orleans is a case study in wiping out the teacher's voice, wiping out community involvement, ignoring and trampling on parents. And that really is um, a bloated democracy, isn't it?
0: Well, it's a huge blow to democracy because you take us back to a period now in New Orleans, and New Orleans public schools is about eighty-eight percent African American. Okay, and we're a very poor city, but, you know, but at one time we couldn't be on a school board. Mm, that's right. Right. We didn't get we didn't get a member on the school board till nineteen sixty-eight. Wow. So now New Orleans is the only parish in the state of Louisiana where your vote doesn't count. So while we post this election last November and these states are passing all of these laws about suppressing the vote in New Orleans and the public schools in New Orleans, they have not suppressed the vote. They eliminated the vote Mm. because all of these school boards are self-appointed and they're all friends and they're all hooked up and they all come out of one group generally of power brokers in this city, you know? So they have basically set up a school district and eliminated the public participation. Is that a fight right now? Is that, is it, is that a struggle right now? Yeah. 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 We have a lot of community groups that are, uh, you know, fighting it. Parents are fighting it, you know, um, and um, you know, unfortunately you know, in addition to everything that is happening, I told you, the these the charters are very big lobbyists in Iowa, of course. But you know, so they're giving money to all of the uh, you know the politicians to keep the laws going. You know,
2: yeah, I know. And but you know, one of the things that gives me some hope, and you're a you're a student of history, and the, when the history of public education is written first of all in the words of W.E.B. Du Bois public education is a negro idea that was Du Bois who said that you know it came it came with it came with reconstruction but the other thing i've witnessed in my own life is the unending struggle of black parents to get a decent education for their kids and sometimes they go you know i want to integrate that school sometimes they go i want to control that school but the what's what's steady in that is i want a decent education for my kids i don't think you can ever write off uh the power of black parents when it comes to to educating their kids
0: and 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 despite the fact of billions of dollars that have been come in from the federal government and from those usual you know philanthropic uh families the resistance is just growing more and more and more right that's encouraging and 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 the other thing is is that people are beginning to see exactly what has happened. you gotta understand when all of this took place right people were still recovered from Katrina. Of course. We are living everywhere. It's not like it was an it, it could have it couldn't have not have happened if Katrina would have come. Of course. It wouldn't would have, have taken over the schools. No, they no
2: Because it was trauma and and Arnie Duncan says it was the greatest thing that happened. But actually it was a massive traumatic violent event yeah. that people are still recovering from, I think. And and, and, and you know
0: it, it, it you know it, it depopulated the whole city. But the other point I want to make because I know we're getting close to the hour. Yeah. Is that It also proved for people like me and you that Milton Freeman was wrong. Because everything that Milton Freeman wrote about in 1955, about what you needed to do to turn the school district around, they had in New Orleans, no unions, no get rid of those old teachers, the private market taking place of it, let them be innovative and creative and they could run it, they had everything. Right. And he failed.
2: That's why your book is important, because uh, the, the coup d'etat of the New Orleans schools, what you lay out is exactly that failure. So this was ideologically driven by the, the corporate reform community. Get rid of the unions, privatize the public space, make a single metric for what constitutes success. And it was a complete washout in New Orleans. So let's let's use it as a lesson, just as we can use this pandemic oh. as a lesson for what we should not
0: do, you know. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great lesson for not just education, but for also what do cities do
1: mm-hmm. when
0: they face with catastrophes mm-hmm. and they get the chance to rebuild? Mm-hmm. It tells you what their values are. Mm-hmm. Right. And in New Orleans, the values were get rid of the black poor people, destroy the school district. Exactly. Uh and put us more in a uh, in a in a um, uh, in a subservient position, take away the vote, right? Uh eliminate the jobs, right? right. So, you know, the, the you know who can lose, you know, seven thousand viable livable wage jobs?
2: Mm.
0: You know, they did they, they just they just gave it away. Not important to them.
2: Well I know that you're fighting back. I urge people to listen to the New Orleans Initiative Imperative, the New Orleans Orleans Imperative. I've been on that show a bunch of times. It's just been such a pleasure to spend this time with you. And I want to know if you're healthy and safe. Are you safe? Safe,
0: healthy, so far so good. Family safe. Everything's going pretty good. good. You know, ironically, you know, our governor and our mayor has done a wonderful job. We have the lowest rate of positivity. Wow. In the state of Louisiana.
2: I saw they shut down Mardi Gras, and that pissed a lot of people off, but it probably was the right thing to do.
0: Right thing to do, and, you know, now, you know, St. Patrick's Day, you know, there's a large... St. Patrick Irish community. So all of that is shut down. But our numbers are looking good. You know, the you know, and since the Biden administration, and as I said, our governor and our mayor has done a good job in getting the vaccine out. So we are really on the upswing on that point.
2: Okay, but I, I want to just tell you that I'm gonna as soon as this stuff is lifted, I'm coming to see you. I'll come visit you in New Orleans. Now, last time you visited my brother, you were in Oakland, right? You had gone out to yeah, Oakland. Yeah, okay. I go
0: to Oakland uh, and visit visit up there once a year. Okay, you gotta so come out for a I, I'm either going to see you in Oakland or New Orleans or Chicago. All right? Yeah, we have a little New Orleans by the Bay party.
2: I love that. All right, Raynard. It's just a delight to talk to you. Raynard Sanders, author of some important books and a a real fighter for, for the black community, but also for public education as a human right. Thank you so much, Ray.
0: Thank you. Talk to you soon.
2: Take care, brother. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger from the podcast Ergo, and to Malik Aleem, producer, co-conspirator, comrade in arms.
1: Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Aleem. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. This week's poetry beat is by Maverick Myers. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, nice.com And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a space for love with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.